0: Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 126. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. This episode, my guest is me. That's right, it's host solo take two. The second episode out of 126, that's uh, just me. I guess technically the bonus episode I did about H.P. Lovecraft, that was just me, but I wasn't really talking about me, I was talking about H.P. Lovecraft, which if you've never checked out that episode, I recommend digging through the archive. Lovecraft, of course, is the science fiction writer whose work inspired a lot of different metal songs, including a handful of Metallica songs as recently as on Hardwired in fact, I believe Hetfield is now playing a guitar with Cthulhu on it if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw it uh, on this last tour which is one of the things that uh, or on this current tour, I should say rather. this tour is ongoing and will continue to go and that's one of the things I want to get into I had the opportunity to catch Metallica three times in the last month as I'm recording this first at MetLife Stadium, the second of the two shows, Giant Stadium in New Jersey. I also got to check out the Metallica pop-up store at the mall, the nearby mall. And then here in Southern California, in Los Angeles, I got to attend both shows, the Friday show and the Sunday show. So I wanna talk about that. I wanna talk a little bit about what I've been up to this summer I've got a bunch of stuff to discuss that's related to the openers on this tour, specifically Ice Night Gills and Pantera. And yeah, I'm going to just kind of talk, and hopefully you'll indulge me. If you only want to hear the episodes with guests, well, there's 123 of those (laughs) you can go back and get into. And I've got another episode all edited and ready to go. Featuring Jordan Olds, a.k.a. Guarsinio Hall, the host of Two Minutes to Late Night. Super fun conversation. But, you know, in looking at the list of episodes in the back end, you know, I've been so sporadic with this thing. I came up with the idea in 2016. I don't think I got the first episode out until early 2017. And since then, it's like, you know, sometimes I'll go six, seven weeks in a row consecutively, actively, regularly, putting out new episodes, and then disappear for a couple months. That's also happened with the other podcasts I do. Probably because, I don't know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have tried to do four podcasts. But I'm still convinced that it's possible to have them all coming out regularly. And that is uh, penciled in as a short-term, long-term goal. If you're not aware, those other podcasts include Pop Curse, where musicians talk about movies. No Prize From God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. And the Disc Dive, which I do with my friends over at Fest, where an artist and I will go through their entire discography. Particularly intense if it's an artist who's been in multiple bands. One of the things I do enjoy about the podcast format, both as a listener and as a creator, is that podcasts, I like to think, are evergreen. You know, I come from a broadcast, digital, and print background where oftentimes I was working on news and sometimes, you know, do a 30-minute interview with Billy Idol or somebody and have to come back to the office and cut it down to like a 45-second news hit that would air once on TRL and never be seen again. And so I do feel that, you know, all of these episodes that I've accumulated here was being destroyed. Interviews with people like Gary Holt, Dave Lombardo. Lizzie Hale, Rob Flynn, Jamie Josta, you know Phil from some kind of monster. I'd like to think that they are evergreen in the sense that you can listen to them anytime and find them just as engaging just as enjoyable as when they were fresh and brand new. I know some podcasts even do kind of like a Monday matinee thing. how did this get made which is one of my favorite podcasts has been doing that but uh, I don't feel that I can really justify dropping reruns on you guys until i'm doing weekly new episodes how did this get made does like a rerun from their archive a new episode and then also like a supplemental follow-up to that new episode so that's like three a week and you know for me to disappear on you for a couple of months and then drop something old i don't think would (laughs) i don't think that would be in very good form now, I attended the Metallica LA shows with shadow count, this, with what we like to call the Speak and Destroy Shadow Council, which includes myself and regular repeat guests, Andrew Carter, the former deputy editor of Terrorizer Magazine, Eric German, the attorney for current Metallica tourmates, Five Finger Death Punch, and Ice Nine Kills, as well as a number of other bands like Asking Alexandria, Nita Strauss, and the great Doc Coyle who, in addition to being the guitarist for God Forbid, a guitarist in Bad Wolves, a bandmate of Kirk and Rob in The Wedding Band, is now also in Ice Nine Kills and has been out on the road (laughs) with Metallica playing in Ice Nine Kills. So in LA, all four of us were there. Uh, Andrew did not make it out to the East Coast shows, but Eric and obviously Doc and myself were there. And one of the things came up in our... Speaking of Roy, Shadow Council group chat was the number of Metallica shows each of us have been to, historically. Andrew is also a deadhead, so he keeps track of that sort of thing. And he also keeps track of, you know, as does Metallica on their website, how many songs did they play tonight from which album, and and so on and so forth. Which is something he's going to come on and we're going to talk about, actually, uh, related to this tour very soon. And I think that's all very cool. But he got me thinking about how many times I've seen the band. And more importantly, which times. You know, special memories of each of those. And I thought I would just mention a handful. You know, they often come up in conversation on the podcast. Regular listeners, I'm sure, have heard me say that my first Metallica show was July 1988. At the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis as part of the Monsters of Rock tour. And that was Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. Scorpions, Dawkins, Metallica, and Kingdom Come. Metallica playing second of five. And as I've said many times, if I were to go to that show today, I would love to see Van Hagar, Eddie Van Halen, Rest in Peace. I would love to watch the Scorpions. But at the time I thought of every one of those bands other than Metallica as, you know, spandex, poofy hair, posers. So my friend and I went, stood with our middle fingers for Kingdom Come, watched Metallica, and then we were home before it was even dinner time. Now, even though it was 1988, this was actually only the third Metallica show in Indianapolis. Their first show in my hometown was at a tiny place called the Sherwood Country Club. They were touring Ride the Lightning with Wasp and Armored Saint. Dig into the archives, and there are episodes with Both John Bush and Joey Vera from Armored Saint, as well as a great episode with Russell Charrington, who directed this documentary on the Saint. And if you check out No Prize from God, one of the other podcasts that I mentioned, there is an episode with Blackie Lawless, talking, of course, about Wasp and about his journey with faith. I didn't attend the show. I was very young, I was not aware of or familiar with Metallica yet. But my good friend John Zeps, who was the guitar player in my band Burn It Down, which was a band from 1997 to 2001, he was there. And he actually not only met Cliff Burton, but smoked weed with Cliff Burton. (laughs) And I mean, it's really his story to tell. In fact, I should probably have him on sometime because he's got great early and mid-80s stories about Slayer coming through town, Metallica coming through town. He was in uh, like a hair metal band called Prowler, and then a really awesome thrash crossover band called Transgression, who played with every notable thrash act when they came through town. Transgression and another band called Drop Dead, not to be confused with the East Coast Drop Dead, were the indie local thrashers who would open all those shows and for me and my friends who were a few years younger than Zepp's going to those shows when we were like 14, 15, 16 transgression drop dead may as well have been, you know, I mean, they were on par for us with every one of those national headlining bands, international headlining bands that were coming through. We didn't really recognize much of a distinction there between those guys who were really just guys from our town. And so it was also a real thrill, you know, in my, uh, early and mid-twenties getting to be in a band with John Zeps from Transgression who is uh, continues to be a brilliant, uh, very gifted guitar player. But anyway, he's at least one person that I know who did see Metallica's first show in indie but again, that wasn't until 85 and that was on Ride the Lightning. There was no Indianapolis Kill em All show you know, let alone like a back in the day Dave Mustaine Ron McCoveney show. The next time they were there, was the following year, on the Ozzy Tour at Market Square Arena. And that was Ozzy and Metallica. And they were, of course, playing a lot of Master of Puppets at that point. There are some very cool Sam Hain photos that were taken in 1986 as Sam Hain was playing a couple of shows in Indiana and in Bloomington and... And in Indianapolis, Bloomington is a college town about 45 minutes an hour south of Indy, where Indiana University is. They had already befriended one another, uh, apparently, because Sam Hain stopped at Market Square Arena and hung out with Metallica. And there are some amazing photos of that, of all four members of Sam Hain at the time. And James Hetfield goofing around together. Some very cool photos. That tour also stopped in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That first show was in April of 86. And then when the tour came back through, you know, like Northern Indiana to Fort Wayne and Evansville in July, Metallica actually missed the Evansville show because James Hetfield had injured himself skateboarding. And again, I wasn't familiar with the band yet. I didn't know any of that. That's just, you know, lore that comes around later. And uh, this brings us up to their, you know, I guess, fourth or fifth show? Fifth show in Indiana, but only third show in Indianapolis. There was Ride the Lightning Era at a very small place with Wasp and Armored Saint. There was an arena show opening for Ozzy on Master of Puppets. And then there was this, the Monsters of Rock with Van Halen. That set list, by the way, which I will not pretend to remember, but is quite helpfully stored at Metallica.com. That set list was Creeping Death, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Sanitarium, Harvester, Whiplash, Fade to Black, Seek and Destroy, Puppets, and then an encore of Last Caress, Am I Evil, and Battery. That show also was attended by Jason Newstead's dad, who I believe drove down from Battle Creek, Michigan. I know that because the local paper in the front page of the entertainment section the next day posted a picture of Jason's dad in a Metallica shirt, right up against the barricade, watching his son. You know, maybe playing Harvester of Sorrow, which they had debuted on that tour. The record wasn't out yet, so it was the first time I heard that song. But I want to talk about some other Metallica shows, including the ones I've seen on this current tour. Another great show was in 1994 also in my hometown they were headlining of course it was at deer creek music center in noblesville which is a suburb of indianapolis and the bill was metallica danzig and suicidal tendencies now if you know me if you listen to the show you know i'm a huge danzig fan i actually run an instagram account purely for fun called this day in danzig it's got 35 or somewhere around there a thousand followers just built up organically in the last few years and this day in danzig is exactly what it sounds like it's a post about a thing or two or three that happened on that day in history in danzig so that's related to misfits sam Hain, danzig comic books movies different things that glenn danzig likes different things related to various folks who have been in the bands over the years it's super fun to put together and a great way to connect with a lot of fellow Dan fans. Uh, You know, friends of mine, friends of the show, like Dwight Hellion from Integrity, Mikey Wave from My Chemical Romance, Randy from Lamb of God, uh, follow that account. But uh, yeah, huge Danzig fan. If you check out the Speak and Destroy Patreon, or if you are a subscriber to the Pop Curse channel on Apple Podcasts, you would have access to the Glenn Danzig bonus episode which is an interview from my interview archives around the time of the Skeletons cover record. One of the things that we talked about was of course Metallica covering Misfits songs. Loved seeing Danzig with Metallica uh, on that tour. When the tour wrapped up in Chicago, which I think might've been the next day after Indy Glenn came out and sang London dungeon. And I think maybe another Misfits song or two with Metallica. There's some great photos on the Metallica website of that of uh both glenn with hetfield and glenn with jason newstead that didn't happen at my show i also remember mike muir from suicidal tendencies had broken his leg or his ankle or something and he performed the show as i think he did a handful of others um with a a full cast and in a wheelchair so he had like guys like pushing him out on stage and i'm pretty sure robert Trujillo was still in suicidal tendencies during that tour. So, yeah, he would have been there um, on stage, playing in suicidal. That was the Summer Shit, Shit Hits the Sheds tour. They opened with Bread Fan, which is awesome. They did the shortened version of Master Puppets that they've been known to do. Wherever I May Roam, Harvester, Sanitarium, The God That Failed. And they were already kind of doing that Kill, Ride, Medley, which had Pieces of "Ride the Lightning," "No Remorse," Four Horsemen," "Phantom Lord," and "Fight Fire with Fire." That went into for him the bell tolls, disposable heroes, seek and destroy, nothing else matters, creeping death, fade to black, closing with whiplash, and then coming out for the first of two encores. The first encore was "Sad but True" and one, and then enter Sandman, and then "So What," which is awesome. Of course, uh, dig into the archives. Find the episode with Animal of Anti-Nowhere League, who talks a lot about Anti-Nowhere League, post-Metallica doing so what. Very cool. And of course, Breadfan is budgie. And there is a budgie episode in the archives, too, where you even get to hear some riffs from the fingers that played them. That's the episode with Tony Borge. I saw them again at the same venue two years later. It's funny because it... seems like a lifetime later. It's funny that it was only two years, but this time they were headlining Lollapalooza, which was quite controversial among the fandoms because it was a quote, alternative tour. But you know, as a friend of mine said to me once, anytime Metallica's headlining your touring festival or your local festival, your regional festival, your open air festival, it's a Metallica show. And that was very much the case uh, for Lollapalooza. This was, you know, this would be on the load album cycle. The lineup for Lollapalooza on the main stage was a band called Psychotica, who opened first, who I know slash remember nothing about. Screaming Trees, Shaolin Monks, Rancid, The Ramones, the version of The Ramones that was going in 96, Soundgarden, and Metallica. On the side stage, that was headlined by Beth Hart Band, Girls Against Boys, who I actually really like and I watched. Benfolds 5, Ruby, Corner Shop, UMI, Soul Coughing, Sponge, The Melvins, Satchel, Johnny Polonski, and Fireside. I didn't see any of those bands. I, I definitely watched Girls Against Boys. Then there was also an indie stage with a whole bunch of bands uh, that uh, none, of, none of the names I recognize now. And there was like this rotating uh, surprise guessed that some like in, in every city you would get somebody different i think raging is the machine maybe did some of them ours was merle haggard which i wish i would have appreciated then the way that i would appreciate now i did get to see merle as an adult um you know i don't know maybe 10 years ago or so uh, at some point I, I have seen merle haggard and it was awesome uh, but at that time i, I but, and I believe that that was a, a Headfield pick, if I'm not mistaken. That Headfield had some influence in Merle Haggard doing some live Albezza shows in '96. The great Merle Haggard, rest in peace. And this is pretty funny. Uh, again, two years after that, in '98, same venue, Deer Creek Music Center, saw Metallica again. Seems like a lifetime. You know, a lot of it's just kind of the age you are. You know, I was in my late teens, early twenties. 94 to 96 to 98, those are like uh, almost a whole different person attending each of those shows. The crazy thing about the 98 show, at that time I was working as the assistant music editor for the local weekly paper. Through that job, I had somewhat of a relationship with the local promotion company, which was called Sunshine Promotions. Sunshine Promotions goes all the way back to 1971 their first show was an isaac hayes concert at the indiana state fairgrounds coliseum it was actually sunshine promotions who built deer creek music center in the late 80s early 90s they were bought by a company called sfx in 97 i believe and eventually that became a part of clear channel one of the co-founders of sunshine promotions was actually ceo at clear channel for a couple of years and of course clear channel eventually spun off it's an uh, events promotion division or whatever as Live Nation. But uh, Sunshine Promotions was our local promotion company in Indianapolis for years and years. They had this thing at Deer Creek Amphitheater where in, was it wasn't really the parking lot. It was just sort of this like area, like after you come in and have your ticket scanned, but before you've made it to your seat, there's this walkway. And there was a little tiny wooden stage, like something you would see on Warp Tour, but but one of the smallest of Warp Tour stages even. I mean, we're talking like a little itty-bitty wood, wooden stage, a couple feet off the ground, where they would pick a local band and let them play, quote-unquote, uh, at one of the bigger shows. And I say play, quote-unquote, at one of the bigger shows because... Undoubtedly, nobody in any of the bands actually performing on the quote-unquote main stage had any idea there was a local band playing there. Also, you were playing at, I don't know, 4 p.m. or whenever the doors opened, like super early. Uh, And you were stopping a good half hour, if not an hour, before the opening band for the real show was playing. I say all of those qualifiers because technically my old hardcore band, Burn It Down, opened for Metallica. (laughs) It was uh, Metallica, Jerry Cantrell, and Days of the New was the tour. July 25th, 1998, Indianapolis, Indiana, Deer Creek Music Center. Burn It Down did open for Metallica. That was through Sunshine Promotions, a guy I knew who worked there, um, who, again, I had that relationship as a music critic, and he knew that I also was in a band. My band was pretty new. I mean, that band had just formed in 97. I think at that point we only had a four-song, seven-inch-slash-EP out. And... They also asked you to to perform for, like, I don't know, they wanted us to play for, like, an hour or an hour and a half. It was some super long time, and I remember we had, like, four or five songs and a cover song. So we actually played the same set repeatedly, like, a few times in a row, because we didn't have any song And also, our songs were, like, two or three-minute songs at that point in the band. um You know, power, violence, noise core. And obviously, I loved Metallica. I wasn't going to pass up that chance. I'm sure Metallica had no idea that we were in the building we weren't even in the building we were you know in the little in the walkway between where you come in and on your way to your seat i think part of the reason they want you to play so long is because you're i mean people aren't necessarily stopping to watch you right like and we were lucky blessed whatever you want to call it in that we did have like a little crowd of i don't know 50 people that that cared enough to stand and watch us and we had some friends there with us i remember that even had some friends from out of town that were visiting, you know, it was fun it's just so wild and random to think about, and of course in, in our band's bio, for the next couple of years in the list of like bands we toured with or played with, I of course always put Metallica um, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, old and responsible enough now to know that that's like r- embarrassing and ridiculous, because it, it, it's not really a real show, we didn't really play with Metallica, but we, but we also did play with Metallica yeah, it's kind of crazy, and that that was you know an era, summer of '98. That was the poor retouring me tour, the poor uh, touring me. I, I think it was came through Randy the year before with Coc opening, but I, I didn't go to that show for whatever reason. But this show, they also opened with Breadfan, which is pretty rad. <laughs> uh, and I was uh, at this moment in time really big into the Load Reload era bleeding me outlaw torn you know songs i've talked about on this podcast a lot that i really loved they played bleeding me at that show they didn't do outlaw torn they did king nothing which i love they did memory remains they played a wolf and man thing that should not be uh one fight fire with fire and they did this really cool for the first encore three songs acoustic that came out with just this like stripped down acoustic setup and the first one was Low Man's Lyric, which is, I mean, I don't know. Will, will I ever see that song live again? And I love that song. That's a you know a deep cut from that Load Reload era. The song with the hurdy-gurdy. And they did Low Man's Lyric. They did Four Horsemen Acoustic, Motor Breath Acoustic. And then the next encore was Sad But True and Inner Sandman. And then they closed with Creeping Death. So that was a sick Metallica show. And if you don't believe me, go watch... The pro shot footage of Metallica Woodstock 99 on YouTube. They are on fire. Now let's talk about the first time I saw Metallica outside of Indianapolis. I was still living in Indianapolis at the time, but I went with a group of very good friends of mine from Chicago to go see Metallica on New Year's Eve 1999. You got to remember, growing up Generation X, you know, (laughs) Prince singing about Parting like it's 1999 all these post-apocalyptic dystopian movies set in the future that were like the late 90s early 2000s and then of course we also had all the anxiety of the Y2K bug and that you know the clock was going to strike midnight and all the computers were going to die or revolt from all the code that wasn't ready for the changeover and so uh, what better way to experience that If it was going to happen, then watching Metallica (laughs) for New Year's Eve in Detroit, of all places. Now, I can tell you what would not have been awesome, which would be the apocalypse happening while Kid Rock or Ted Nugent were opening. Uh, Seven Dust was also on that show. Seven Dust is cool. The Nuge and Kid Rock are uh, obviously both from Michigan. I guess that's why they're part of the show. They came out um, during one of the encores. Uh, they, they covered Metallica. Covered the Kiss classic "Detroit Rock City." Kiss, of course, famously not from Detroit, but has that song about Detroit. And yeah, Kid Rock. Ugh. And uh, the Nuge came out and guessed it as well as members of Seven Dust. But yeah, that was a very cool show. Speaking of Danzig and the Misfits, they opened with "Die Die My Darling." Uh, they played Fuel. Bells, Horseman, Whiskey, 2x4, don't hear that one much, No Leaf Clover, Sad But True, Creeping Death, The Great, Bleeding Me, Master Terrium as it says on the set list on their site, which I can only assume was a blending of Master of Puppets and Sanitarium, Closed with Blackened, Came Out for the First Encore, Nothing Else Matters, King Nothing, One, Turn the Page, which is great, Bob Seger, you know, that makes sense up there. Sandman was the second encore with Detroit Rock City right behind it. And then last but not least for encore number three, Phantom Lord. That show does exist on the interwebs. I recommend checking out uh, one of the the videos of Blackened that's on YouTube. But uh, but the whole show's out there if you want to see what was happening on New Year's Eve 1999 in Metallica Land. So here's a fun one. It's 2003. I'm living in California at this point. I am working as a reporter and producer for MTV News. And I'm working the MTV icon Metallica show. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast should know this show has come up more than once on the podcast. I've had both Dave and Derek from Sum 41 separately on. And man, Sum 41 stole the show. This was before it was like. Widely known that those dudes could shred some metal. I mean, this was like peak, you know, Sum 41 was a TRL, like, pop-punk band. And that lineup, that 2003 lineup of MTV-assembled bands to pay tribute to Metallica was less than optimum. We had Snoop Dogg doing Sad But True. No, no, No disrespect to Snoop Dogg, but a very catatonic youths version of Sad But True. We had Stained... Limp Biscuit doing Sanitarium, Corn doing a very abbreviated version of One, Avril Lavigne playing Fuel. So yeah, Sum Forty One opening the show with a medley, just a ripping medley. They sounded incredible. They were great, and it was the world's first real look at Robert as Metallica's new bass player. I posted a picture of my MTV Icon Metallica laminate on Instagram once as like a throwback, and and even this. This itself, this throwback, is not a throwback. It was several years ago. And I tagged some of the Metallica guys in it, and Kirk Hammett actually replied to my Instagram and just said, no comment. Now don't get me wrong, the MTV Icon concept was cool. There was one that aired only in England uh, dedicated to The Cure, which saw like AFI featuring Marta from Bleeding Through on keyboards, covering a Cure song, a bunch of other acts. And of course, no one's more worthy than Metallica. They talk about the MTV Icon thing in some kind of monster. If you've seen that, you know that's where the uh, the classic. He left the band. I'm gonna try not to make this an explicit episode, but that's where that clip comes from. That's when they're talking about you know whether or not to include Jason in MTV Icon, and you know he lost his icon status, but you know they actually did end up including him in the show. And you know all the Metallica portions of the show are pretty cool. It's just the uh, the tribute aspect, which is really the meat and potatoes of it. Not that great. A few bright spots, but not many. Not so much even about the guests themselves necessarily, as just that, that era, just a, an era in pop culture that was awkward. A few years later in 2006, I was in England at the historic Castle Donington for what is now called the Download Festival. It was called the Download Festival then also, but of course us metalheads, we all still call it Castle Donington. I was over there with the band Throwdown, who I managed and still manage, and the band Bleeding Through, who I was managing at the time, both were playing the Download Festival, and it was a very exciting time for me, because not only did I have two bands on the festival, but Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and Tool were the headliners across the weekend. I like Tool. Dave Peters, the singer of Throwdown, he loves Tool. I obviously love Metallica, and I like Guns N' Roses, even that 2006 version of Guns N' Roses I'm still interested in seeing. Ran into our friends in 18 Visions backstage there. Matt from Avenged Sevenfold, who of course was the first ever guest on the Speaking Destroy podcast. Saw James Hetfield sign someone's arm in catering. And even as, as he was signing it, he was like, Are you sure about this spot, man? It's some pretty prime real estate. Interesting thing about that set is it was one of the times that they performed, quote unquote, the new song which they performed uh, only four times ever all that summer in, uh, in June 2006. First time was in Berlin uh, a little bit before that download show. The last time was in Italy. And there is a recording available. You can buy even the double disc CD, I think, on the Metallica site of that show. And you can hear that song. That's the song that was, uh, you know, it says death is not the end, not the end, not the end. It's the beginning of uh, the new song. Four times only and I saw one of them, so that's fun. Uh, They did take a bunch of parts from it and chop them up, and they found their way into other songs. So There's parts of the the so-called the new song in The End of the Line, All Nightmare Long, and Cyanide, which of course are all songs on Death Magnetic. Another great memory about Download 2006 is at the conclusion of Throwdown's set, I took a photo of the band that's kind of you know what I call the Iron Maiden photo where the band puts their back to the crowd and they all stand together arm in arm and everyone behind them puts their hands up in the air and you take this really cool, very rock and roll, very Iron Maiden-looking photo. That photo is probably my favorite Throwdown band photo and that lineup of Throwdown is reuniting in 2023, playing together those four for the first time since 2008. I believe first show since 2015 and the first show in America since 2011 but it's those four guys who were together on that stage in download 2006 your Metallica headlines and that's the photo that we used to announce Throwdown's appearance at Furnace Fest which as I'm recording this year in September 2023 is coming up in just a couple weeks without going into detail about, you know, every one of the 30 some shows before I we get to 2023. So I'm going to mention a few of them. I mean, on the World Magnetic Tour, I saw a, a lot of shows. I saw the band at Weenie Roast in Irvine, California in May 2008, and then I saw them uh, twice in December in San Diego and in Los Angeles. And then in April 2011, I saw the Big Four show in Indio, and I actually, as a freelancer, wrote about it for MTV News. Uh, maybe in the show notes or somewhere, I'll post a link to that write-up. It's uh, more exhaustive than I remembered it. <laughs> I went into some great detail about that Big Four show. It was, sadly, the final performance of Jeff Hanneman with Slayer. He came out for two songs. Uh, Gary Holt was was otherwise manning the position for the show, but Jeff, who was ill, Came out and performed "Angel of Death" and "South of Heaven." Slayer being a band that I saw for the first time, like Metallica in 1988. Slayer, Motorhead, and Overkill. An Overkill who I just saw in 2023 playing in the parking lot at Giant Stadium with Metallica. But yeah, uh, very sad that you know. Of course, we didn't know that that was going to be Jeff's final show with Slayer. And in fact, he passed away less than a month after that Big Four show in India. Jeff Hanneman, rest in peace. In fact, I remember the news of Jeff Hanneman's death spreading at the Golden Gods Awards that year, less than a month after the Big Four show. Metallica headlined the Golden Gods show. Rob Halford came out and did Judas Priest Rapid Fire with the band. Awesome. Again, if you dig through the archives, you can find the episode with Josh Bernstein, who was the co-creator of the Revolver Golden Gods Awards, the Alternative Press Music Awards, and the short-lived Loudwire Music Awards. Josh tells me all about what it's like booking Metallica for your award show. I was managing not one, but two metal bands that were hand-picked to be on the second year of Metallica's Orion Music and More Festival, the year that they had it in Michigan. So I went out and, you know, I got to see Kirk introduce one of the bands, Robert introduced the other band, got to play the Metallica pinball machine for the first time. Again, dig through the archives. You can listen to the episode with Jody Dankberg from Stern Pinball. We talk all about his career, which had a lot to do with Crank Amps and Dimebag Daryl, and then all the licensing he's done at Stern Pinball, including doing the Metallica Machine, So, a very, very cool episode and a very good friend, a very cool guy, Jody Dankberg. But yeah, at that show, you know, Metallica headlined the whole festival, obviously. But they did a secret set billed as Delane or Dehan. Like I always get it confused with Delane because I think that's a real band. They were they were billed as Dehan, Dane DeHaan, because I was the actor who was in the Through the Never movie. But uh, they played in like, the middle of the afternoon, the first day of the festival, and it was an all kill set. It was the entire kill all record, start to finish, on a small side side, on a small side stage out in the middle of the field, and it kicked so much ass. Just about a month later, I was working Comic-Con for MTV News as a freelancer. And I had the great privilege of interviewing Mr. Kirk Hammett. They were there promoting Through the Never. I did the MTV interview with Kirk. And then the band's publicist at the time was kind enough to get my friends and I tickets into the small secret underplay show that they were doing at Spreckles Theater in San Diego, which is a tiny, tiny place. It was so awesomely loud in there. And then, you know, you look over uh, and you see in the, Rob Halford watching in the balcony. You see Bradley Cooper to the left of you Playing air guitars, singing every word. Norman Reedus is there. Brian Posehn is there. It, it, you know, it's Comic Con. Uh, it was just, it was just a very cool environment. A uh, bunch of people that uh, you know do cool things in their own right and are creative artists in their own right and who love Metallica just like we do, just like everyone listening to this podcast does. And it was really awesome to hang with that sort of branch of the Metallica family, if you will. Way after the show. I'm walking around San Diego, I think heading back to the hotel, I'm by myself, there's like no one on the streets anymore. I don't know if you've ever been to San Diego Comic-Con, you know, the nightlife is crazy, both with just the usual San Diego nightlife and then everyone is there for Comic-Con. But it was so late, it was like three in the morning or something, there's just nobody around. And I go walking down the street, I'm like a full block away, no one on the street. I like turn a corner and from a block away, I see one person, a single solitary man standing on the sidewalk. And that man was Kirk Hammett. (laughs) I don't know where he was coming from, but uh, I had just interviewed him earlier that day. You know, so there was a little uh, uh, face recognition that way. And I just been been to the show. And so, yeah, I'm just like walking towards him for a block. (laughs) Turns out he was waiting for a car. And, uh, yeah, stopped and and said hello to him and we chatted for a few minutes. He asked me what I thought of the show. He was super nice. And then, uh, black SUV pulled up and he hopped in it and I went to my hotel. Very cool little moment for sure. The following year, 2014, I got to see Metallica play a short acoustic set at a music cares event honoring Ozzy Osbourne. They played their Rare Earth cover, I Just Want to Celebrate, which they hadn't played since, I think, one of the Bridge School shows in, like, 2007. And they premiered a handful of cover songs, uh, Deep Purple, When a Blind Man Cries, which they did continue to play. And uh, In My Life by The Beatles. I don't know if they've ever done that again. And they played "Dire of a Madman from The Ozman himself. Two years later, I got to be in the audience for a taping of Jimmy Kimmel Live that Metallica played. I got a really cool photo. I'm not, you know, how often do you get a great photo with your phone, really? I got a really great photo of uh, Headfield making a funny face at somebody, like a happy funny face. And uh, it's really cool. I've posted it before. If you follow me on anything, if you follow the Speaking Destroy Instagram, you've probably seen it. And the day after Jimmy Kimmel Live, I got to see them play what is a very small venue for them the fonda theater in hollywood it was a charity show a long set i was very close they opened with bread fan heard harvester that night heard whiskey atlas rise and you know what's particularly interesting about that show is i remember someone telling me that they saw lady gaga by the soundboard and now keep in mind, I'd just seen Bradley Cooper at a Metallica show, so I knew that he was a fan. Well, apparently he had brought Gaga to the show. And, you know, Gaga's a metal fan. She's talked about Iron Maiden and Metallica and stuff before as well. But they were working on that Starsborn movie around that time. And uh, as I would later find out seeing interviews with Lars, it was that night, I guess, after that show where they all kind of hung out and where the idea of doing something together Came up, and that's how she ended up singing Moth into Flame with Metallica at the Grammys. I was able to attend that in February 2017. I'd been to the Grammys before as a reporter, as a manager, Um, you know, been on the red carpet and that sort of thing, but I had never had like a ticket where you sit in a seat and you watch the show. And that year was the first time that I ever got to do that was with my buddy Josh Bernstein who I just mentioned a little bit ago. And uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before like uh, as cool as it was to see Metallica it was such a disappointment you know both in the rehearsal uh, as I would later learn and in the show itself uh, Laverne Cox who introduced Metallica and Gaga forgot or didn't say Metallica she apologized on Twitter after that. And then of course, you know, infamously Edfield's mic wasn't working, and you know they they powered through it. Um, I also got to say, just as irritating as the mic not working and the band not really getting introduced, were the weird extras that were dancing around that kind of looked like a, you know, old navy commercials version of metal people. And it's just one of those things where it's like you know we get so few opportunities for hard rock, metal, punk to shine at events like that, and it it, it just felt like we were getting you know our nose is pushed into the dirt a little bit. And I personally know and knew people who work and worked at the RIAA and for the Grammys specifically, who who love metal, who care about it, who advocate for it and fight for it. So, you know, it's easy to point fingers at the monolithic institution of, you know, the evil Grammys or, but it's like anything else, you know, it's just, they're just people, and there are some people there fighting the good fight. There are some people who are indifferent. There may be a couple people who are actively being irritating, but I can say for a fact that I have firsthand knowledge that there are good people there with great intentions, and they were just as disappointed and angry about what happened to Metallica that year as I was. And hey, they pulled it off. I actually thought Lady Gaga was great, and she shared her mic with headfield and. You know, it certainly could have been a lot worse. I mean, the band has dealt with worse and came out fine. And man, so many other killer shows here in Southern California. Uh, seen the band play at BlizzCon at the Anaheim Convention Center, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena with Avenge Sevenfold and Gojira, went up to San Francisco with the great Andrew Carter from the Speaking of Story Shadow Council. We caught the second night of S and M two. Did the Metallica at the drive-in during the pandemic, which we've talked about on the podcast before. The 40th anniversary shows, got to check out both of those, as well as the wedding band show on the night in between. And closed out 2022 with that December All Within My Hands show at Microsoft Theater in LA, where uh, Jimmy Kimmel hosted and the band was introduced by Robert Downey Jr. No relation. So let's dig into 2023, the three Metallica shows that I have seen this year. So MetLife, Metallica Life, Giant Stadium. (laughs) Let's let's, uh, kick off there. I was already going to be in New York City for the first time in a number of years. Um, I've been to New York a lot in my life, but not much in recent years. In fact, I think the last time I was there, and I don't even know what year this was, um, I moderated a panel at Warner Music Merch about their merch division with the guy who ran the merch division, a good friend of mine, Matt Young, and the guy who at the time managed Green Day and had managed Green Day for a long time. And that was long enough ago that Matt Young's no longer at Warner, and that manager no longer manages Green Day. They've switched management, <laughs> so it's been a, it's been a, it's been a minute. I don't know, five or six years. Anyways, uh, so I was excited to head back over there to moderate q and A Q&A with Spencer, the singer of Ice Nine Kills, and author Roy Merkin. Uh, the occasion for the Q and A was to talk about. The new book, The Silver Scream, uh, with Rare Bird Publishing. It was at Barnes & Noble Union Square, a capacity crowd of Ice Nine Kills fans, and it was super fun. It's actually something that we're looking forward to doing again, potentially on the West Coast. But I was set to be out there for that anyway. That was on a Monday. Ice Nine Kills was opening for Metallica at MetLife the day before. So, I came out Saturday. Went to the show on Sunday. It was absolutely killer. I got to meet James Hetfield's guitar tech, Chad, who's been a guest on the show and is an awesome as we dude Got to meet him in person for the first time, which was killer. Ran into a lot of friends. Went to the Metallica pop-up shop at the local mall with my buddy Josh Bernstein and his wonderful daughters. We, uh... You know, I I didn't know what to expect from a Metallica pop-up store, and there was a long line. It was well-organized, well-run. I mean, the whole thing was was pretty sweet, but uh, I was just kind of amazed by how well it was doing at, you know, 11 a.m. or whatever on a Sunday. Saw Overkill in the parking lot, as I mentioned earlier. Overkill, one of the first metal bands I saw. Bobby Blitz has been a guest on the podcast, if I didn't mention that already. As has Jason Bittner, drummer for Shadows Ball, and now the longtime drummer for Overkill as well. Got to say hi to Jason for a quick minute there. And uh, Overkill was so loud. <laughs> I don't know how to describe how loud they were, but it was like oppressively slash impressively loud. I, it was the hardest my, my ears have ever been ringing that I can remember. And a great reminder to wear ear protection, which I uh, started doing again after that, I'd forgotten. Didn't have any with me. Uh, but now, I've learned that especially at these big venues, you can just go up to guest services and ask for some. Earplugs. Which I did at both Metallica shows in LA. Protect your ears, kids. Trust me. So, yeah, it was the closest I've ever been. Of the dozens and dozens of times I've seen Metallica. Many of which, but not all of which, I mentioned through this episode already. I've never been this close. So right up front for Ice Nine Kills, right up front for Five Finger Death Punch, and right up front for Metallica inside the, the snake pit. And just so spectacularly close. One of the things I was really struck by at that show in particular, and I would say contrasting it with, say, the s and 2 show I went to, the camaraderie with the band was palpable. It was just a You could feel how well everyone's getting along, how sort of happy and healthy everyone seemed, you know, James in particular, of course, but all the guys, I mean, were just in top form, and of course, these set lists on this tour are killer because they are varied. Now, I will say, having seen three of these shows, and this is the nitpickiest of nitpicks, right, but... You know, diehard fans, we can we can still sort of predict what's going to happen. There's maybe a couple of surprises once in a while. For example, at the second LA show, they played Dirty Window, which I certainly didn't expect and was kind of welcome because it just, you know, I don't love that record. Most of us don't. I don't go back and listen to it. But when you hear one of those songs live, it's just certain nostalgia to it. And I had just shown my daughter some kind of monster for the first time the day before. So it was... Um, you know, sort of weirdly timely, if that makes sense <laughs> to uh, to hear a Sand Anger song live. But anyway, my point being you know, if you hear Orion at one show, you know, you're probably going to hear Cthulhu at another show. If you hear Inner Sandman at one show, you're probably going to hear Puppets at another show. It, I mean, there, there's some degree of predictability to the no-repeat weekends, uh, funnily enough. I mean, certainly it would be killer to see some sort of all deep cuts show. They're a band that could do that considering, you know, given their size, given how many bands do that, that are much smaller than Metallica. Uh, having said that, like, like I said, it's an extremely small complaint. I love the sets. All three shows I've seen didn't have any issues with anything that I heard. Wasn't bored by anything. Uh, you know, they don't really have any songs that they could play as far as the, the hits that are boring um could i leave a metallica show happy without having heard sandman or nothing else matters totally Uh, i'm sure the band would be happy to not play some of those songs that they've played at just about every show for decades now so that is i mean something cool about the no repeat weekends is you do get more songs just by nature of the fact that they cannot repeat another song but i would like to see as the tour goes forward you know Lars, well, of course, makes the set list, always has. If he wants to throw in another deep cut or two here and there, you know, maybe a Dyer's Eve, uh, maybe a Fixer, which I think has still only ever been played live once. I, I did get to see it, which was cool. Uh, I certainly wouldn't complain, and fans wouldn't complain either. At the same time, there is always, you know, that broader audience you have to serve, and you got to think like it's always someone's first Metallica show, whether they're super young, whether they came in via Stranger Things whether they've loved the band their entire lives and they're my age, but they've just never had the opportunity to see them. And I do always think, like, gosh, it would be super disappointing if you'd never seen them and you finally get to, and then they don't play these, like, three or four obvious songs that you were totally expecting to hear. So, you know, any established act has to contend with that. I mean, if, if you've never seen Earth Crisis and they don't play Firestorm, you know, if you've... <laughs> <laughs> If you've never seen Slipknot and they don't, you know it's just it's just something that uh, you have to contend with as you uh, continue forward. And again, it's a good problem to have. It's a nice problem to have that you have songs that are so beloved that people expect to hear them, and then you have deep cuts that are so rad that people are disappointed if you don't dig deeper into them. So, yeah, that show was killer. Both LA shows uh, were killer. The Ice Nine kills. I'm gonna try to see how many times I can say killer. The Nine Kills Uh, Q&A was also killer. And then, yeah, in L.A., I got to see Pantera, which I didn't see since I only went to the one show at MetLife. Saw Pantera. And, uh, of course, Wolfgang. Uh, Got to meet some of the folks from the Wolfgang camp who I've been friendly with for a long time, but I never really met. And also got to see my very good friend Kevin, who's the publicist for... Wolfgang, uh, as well as a number of other great bands, uh, Alter Bridge and Miles Kennedy um, a bunch of uh, friends of the show, folks who've been on the podcast before have come on via Kevin, I'd love to have Kevin on himself at some point which I probably will and uh, we've also talked about having Wolf come on the podcast which uh, could happen also, got to spend some time with Zoltan and Chris Kale I met Ivan Moody briefly at the New Jersey show um Always a pleasure running into kale. Uh, super great conversations and hangs with Zoltan. I've talked to both of them over the years about being on the podcast. I feel like I mean they both they both want to. It's really just been a matter of scheduling it and of me you know getting episodes out more regularly than <laughs> the sporadic uh, uh, schedule or lack thereof that I've seemed to have been on with this podcast for better or worse. So gonna land the plane here. And I'm looking, and it's about the hour mark, which I I didn't know if I could fill 10 minutes or, or what this episode would be like. So hopefully you've hung out with me here and listened to me ramble on and on about different Metallica shows I've seen over the years. A few things related that I want to mention. One is that I wrote my first published work of fiction. Uh, and it is now been published It is a 10 page story based on the song by demons be driven in the new Pantera vulgar display graphic novel from Z two comics. It was a tremendous thrill. I've been a writer, you know, professionally and unprofessionally since I, you know, I started doing fanzines as a teenager. I had my first like real byline, I think around age 21 but I've never written fiction that's been published anywhere, and it's just not something I really do. And uh, man, I not only did I enjoy exercising that creative muscle, uh, you know that that graphic novel is an anthology where different writers and artists tackle, you know, stories, ten-page stories based on different songs on the record. I picked that song immediately. It was not assigned to me. It was it was chosen by me. And uh, came up with a, what I think is a really cool, loosely inspired by story. It's very kind of a Hammer horror meets the Wicker Man kind of vibe. And it was so much fun, and it really gave me the itch to do more. And I have done more since then. And uh, but yeah, it was super cool. You know, the, the comic company, the editors, they look for writers, they look for friends of the band, and that sort of thing, and uh, I don't know, this is a flex, a brag, it's certainly not a humble brag, because I'm not going to do the irritating thing where I go, oh shucks, I don't know why me, I'm just going to put this out there, they asked the band, any writers you guys have in mind, any, anyone come to mind that you that you personally want, and the only name, as I understand it, Rex Brown, sent back, was mine. And that is just so humbling, so rad. Ah, I said humble. You know what I'm trying to say. It's just killer. I love Rex. I've gotten to work with him on a few different things over the years. He's also been a guest on Speaking to Story. Yep, I'm going to keep plugging all those archival episodes. Just like seeing a band for the first time and not hearing Inner Sandman, you might be listening to Speaking to Story for the first time or the fifth time, and you may not realize all these incredible conversations I've been having since 2016. That are just waiting for you in the archive. The archive's free. I haven't paywalled old episodes. They're all chilling there on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. There's also bonus episodes via the Patreon from my interview archives, which are, you know, interviews that weren't specifically done for the Speaking of Story podcast, but that are with guests that you know relate to metallica in some way uh whether it's you know jd from the sword whether it's one of my interviews with kirk hammett from over the years that danzig interview i mentioned stuff like that i've tossed in there uh, there's, there's one with surge from system you know bands that have had some kind of connection to metallica in some way and interviews that i did for some reason uh, randy from lamb of god You know, I had Mark on the podcast uh, early on, specifically for the podcast. I'd like to get Randy at some point. But I did have, you know, I've had other conversations with Randy, and I thought, why not make one a bonus episode? Because, certainly, they've toured with Metallica. But I digress. The Pantera graphic novel, it is available now. It does exist. I've seen them uh, posting pictures of it, and... uh, my buddy who runs the Z2 comic company to me and, and showed me as he was opening it up. It's just a huge thrill to see that. I mentioned that I got the itch. Well, I, not long afterwards, did a 100-page original story for Ice Nine Kills. Ice Nine Kills has done a graphic novel already called Inked in Blood, and this is Inked in Blood 2, Once Upon a Crime. Spencer named it. They, you know, obviously have some story elements from the first book that carry over into the second book. And Spencer had a, a, you know, some ideas. And him and I worked collaboratively together early in the process. And then he just let me run wild. You know, I created a bunch of characters, came up with a whole story. Lots of different twists and turns. Uh, as you would imagine in a Nice Nine Kills book, and it's particularly a an Nice Nine Kills book written by me, it is an homage to various slasher classics in many ways, while also telling what I hope is an original, fresh, and fun story with some cool characters. I got really invested in those characters as I was writing it. And again, fiction is new for me, and uh, I had such a blast. I just I want to do more and more and more. And there are two other graphic novel projects. One that has been delivered, but I don't believe has been announced yet. I will say that it is a story for another anthology for one of my favorite bands of all time. We're talking, you know, my top three favorite bands. And those of you listening already know that Metallica is one of them. Oasis is another and it's not an Oasis graphic novel. And so uh I won't say who the third is, but uh maybe process of elimination, maybe if you follow me on social media you could maybe guess. Uh it hasn't been announced yet. I will announce it uh when the time comes. And then there's a graphic novel that as soon as I'm done recording this, I will be getting back to work on that also has not been announced. Uh and this one will be another 100-page uh you know, big sprawling story. This will be starting uh, a new tale, doing some world building with another great artist, who uh, another lead singer who is a close friend and who is a for real bonafide comics fan going way back and uh, he has some very cool ideas. We've been collaborating on those and I'm, we're still in the early kind of outlining stages and uh, that should be getting announced pretty soon as well. But yeah, I'm just, I'm really digging that. Really having a lot of fun. And I should mention, lastly, before I leave you here, um, when, or wrap up this episode, I should say, because you're going to go listen to other episodes, so you're still hanging out with me, right? Tomorrow, as I'm taping this, I will be getting on a plane heading to the Boston area for the Silver Scream Con 2. If you know or don't know, Ice Nine Kills curates a horror convention. They launched it for the first year last year. My buddy Jose Mangan, who's been a guest on the show, uh, was there as part of it. And uh, I was there hosting and running all of the panels with all of the various guests of the convention different uh, folks from different horror films and various franchises. And, of course, the members of Ice Nine Kills themselves was the last panel, which we wrapped up there. Uh, Last year, there was also an Ice Nine Kills show in a movie theater with Twisted. The homies love those dudes. There was also a Twisted panel last year. But, uh, yeah, coming back out for year two. A bunch of great guests. uh, Skeet Ulrich from Scream. Tony Todd, a.k.a. The Candyman, who's also in my favorite movie of all time, The Crow. Just a ton of awesome filmmakers. Uh, there's a couple of live podcasts happening there. Uh, not mine, but some other podcasts. There's a Stephen King podcast that Fangoria is involved with. They're going to be doing one. Um, it's just, It should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. That is this weekend. By the time you listen to this episode... It may have already happened, but that is uh, yeah coming up here in a few days. So, I think that should do it for Host... Host? Host? <laughs> Kristen? Kirsten? Host Solo Take 2 Speaking Destroy. Let me know if you enjoy these, if you want to hear more episodes that are just me. I'm sure you want to hear more episodes in general, which I appreciate and which I intend to be doing, and certainly... The whole concept for this podcast is interviews about Metallica. And that's what I've done for 123 episodes. But uh, yeah, this is also fun. And I did get some surprisingly great feedback the last time I did it. So yeah, hopefully you guys dig this one. If you made it this far, you probably didn't hate it too much. Uh, was that a humble brag? Boo. The humble brags. Awful. By the way, a lot of people sort of misuse the phrase humble brags, a humble brag is not a brag. A brag is just a brag, which is great. A humble brag is when someone says, like, uh, headed to Dubai to interview Tom Cruise, stupid, weird job. That's a real one, by the way, that someone I know tweeted that made it into the book of humble brags. The phrase was coined by the great, late, may you rest in peace, Harris Whittles, a comedian. He was a writer and producer on Parks and Recreation, very beloved in the comedy community. I got to exchange a couple emails with him once. He was seemed so sweet. Uh, struggled with various addictions, and uh, sadly passed away way too young. But he's the guy who actually came up with the phrase, ran the Twitter account, and eventually published a book with a bunch of the humble brag tweets in there. My buddy Dave Peters from Throwdown. See, he used to kind of you know you could like anonymously email tweets that you saw that were obvious humble brags, and then he would re- retweet them. Uh, my buddy Dave uh, turned in one of mine because we, him and I, both loved that account and we were and we were often sending tweets, <laughs> turning people in uh, to Harris and blind copying each other just to kind of be like, hee hee, look, we just turned this in or whatever. And uh, Dave turned in one of mine, kind of as a joke, kind of burning me for a humble brag. Uh, and the tweet was, and it it, I, it definitely qualifies. I had tweeted. Um, you know, all my friends are seeing the Avengers, and I'm stuck watching Johnny Depp and Marilyn Manson. It's total humble brag. Um I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to defend it. I will explain it, saying that you know, in my uh, movie world, movie reporter element, um, a bunch of my friends in that film reporter world were seeing. I guess it was the first Avengers movie early. It was an advanced screening, and I really wanted to see it. And I was at the Revolver Golden Gods, which was certainly cool to be at, and Johnny Depp was doing a guest performance with Marilyn Manson. Um, And uh, given the choice between the two, I would have rather have been watching The Avengers. I'm glad I was at The Golden (laughs) Gods, and I did eventually see The Avengers countless times, but uh, yeah, again, I'm explaining it, not defending it, it is a humble brag. It is saying, look at me, I could be seeing Avengers early, look at me, I'm seeing a huge movie star uh, poorly play guitar (laughs) with a a huge uh, soon-to-be-canceled music star. But uh, yeah, humble brags. Um, Stop calling regular brags humble brags, and and definitely stop humble bragging. Uh, The the phrase kind of got, you know, retired, I think, by Harris before he passed away. It sort of run its course with the joke and Again, people who who use the phrase now tend to misuse it anyway. But I have friends who will ask me like, "Hey, is this a humble brag?" Because they know that I was like super into it when it was when it was a thing. And uh, usually it isn't. Usually it's just a brag. A humble brag is where you are saying something self-deprecating, uh, self-effacing while sneaking in a huge flex, a huge brag about something cool that you're doing or something cool about you. It's as simple as that. And um, bring back bragging. Just brag, you know? So, yeah, there's some flexes in here. What can I say? Uh, gosh, I was just about to say something self-effacing. It's really easy to trip and fall into. Um, but there we have it. You can follow and Destroy on all the different social channels. I'm not going to list them for you. You know what social media is all about. I post a lot of cool, rare, fun Metallica photos on the Speaking Destroy Instagram account, which recently cracked 11,000 followers, which is nice. uh, Because, yeah, that means people love looking at those pictures. So that's a good time. But yeah, SpeakingDestroy.com, ryanjodowney.com, you know what to do. And please, subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform of choice leave a five-star rating write a nice little review those really do help till next time you guys have been great and i've been ryan j downing